0: I remember many years ago my parents gave me my very first watch, and it was a present, and uh, I was really, really excited to receive it. Now, it wasn't a fancy digital one like you get today, it was one of those old world ones. It wasn't actually a fob pocket one, but it was one that went on my wrist and and it actually had an actual um, watch face with hands and stuff and numbers. And it had this, um, but the really exciting part about it for me was that it had a second hand. And I thought, oh, this is just the best thing ever. Because when one full sweep of the second hand went round that clock face, that was a minute. There goes another minute. Excellent. Well, there it is. Now, of course, it was really good to time things. Now, my Sunday school teacher at the time said the longest prayers in history, according to me, when I was eight. So now that I had this watch, I actually had this new function. I could now time the lengths of his prayers. How exciting is that? I think we actually got up to seven minutes. Which, in little boy language, was probably eternity. Now, I guess the point of that story is the importance that my teacher placed on prayer. You know, talking to God. Yeah, it was good to learn the Bible stories. It was good to learn the books of the Bible by heart, and they made us do that in those days. But that's only part of the story. It has to be a given in our Christian walk that we understand how much God wants us to communicate with him. Now, today is part three of four of our series on prayer. India started the series a couple of weeks ago, talking about the glory of God. Remember from Exodus. Last week, Dave talked about the Lord's Prayer. Now today, and as Lynn read, we're talking about the prayers of Jesus. So in John chapter 17, we learn about Jesus praying to the Father. Why did he pray at this point? Why has the Holy Spirit laid it on John's heart to include these prayers in his gospel? You know the theologian um, John Calvin sums it up this way, he says Jesus here shows teachers an example that they should not occupy themselves in sowing the word but by mixing their prayers with it so it should implore God's help in sowing that word. That's his blessing that that work will be made fruitful. So Jesus is giving us another example now of living for him. When we are teaching God's word, albeit in church or Sunday school, Bible study groups, connect groups, whatever, we must be mixing our teaching with prayer. Spiritually dead sermons, Bible lessons or Bible studies, cannot produce living students or disciples. When we teach God's word, it must be complemented with prayer. And it's through prayer that the Word of God is released through preaching and teaching. So I've broken up today's sermon, um, today's talk, in, in three what I call three divisions. So uh, this is they. Our first five verses, as, as Lynn quite correctly said, was Jesus prays for himself. 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. Now I'm going to take some poetic license because I didn't ask to read the first five verses, so I'm going to do that. Um, If you've got your Bibles there, please feel free to to follow along as, as we read from God's Word. After Jesus says this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I'd come with you before the world became, began. Now, Jesus is making a couple of statements here. The hour has come is the first one. And glorify your son is another one. Jesus now is acknowledging here that time has finally come when the events leading to his death on the cross will come to fruition then we see Jesus asking God to glorify Him. Now what does "glorify" mean? Here's one definition. I had to go and look, look in the dictionary to find this one: to acknowledge the true worth of something. Well, that something is so worthy or so valuable, we use words like "magnificent" and "splendid" and "glorious." When we acknowledge the beauty and the perfection of Jesus, how do we react? we make a response of praise and we exalt him and we worship him. And we've had a really good example of that this morning, haven't we? There is no one so worthy to be praised. There is no one so magnificent, so splendid or glorious than the person of Jesus Christ. Now I wonder if we think in our humanly mind, what Jesus is actually asking, all this glory, as some sort of part of his self-promotion of Jesus, we need to remember how Jesus was to be glorified to experience a cruel and painful death. He would be separated from the Father as he bore the sins of mankind. This definitely not wasn't for his glory, but that the Father was glorified through Jesus' perfect obedience to him. Now, Jesus has this authority to grant eternal life. We, saw, we read that in verse 2. And it's to those who are, have been given to him. I think there's two aspects that we need to consider here. The first one is its source. It's a gift of the Son. Now, before this gift can be granted to us, a prior gift is required. That's the eternal Or universal granting of authority to the Son Romans 1 4 says this and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord as Lord of all Jesus has the authority to give life to all because there won't be there will be many who will not believe this life won't go to them but Believers who do receive the gift know that it's not through anything that we've done ourselves, but rather the action of God himself. And that's the gift of the Father to the Son. And what is the nature of eternal life? Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. Eternal life is not about the quantity of life, but rather the quality of life. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is not so much about everlasting life, but knowing the everlasting one. Augustine summarised it this way. He said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said what must I do to, etern- to um, earn eternal life tell me and I'll do it what did Jesus say sell your position- possessions and follow me now the selling position- of, of all your possessions part was a bit tough wasn't it what Jesus is really saying here is do you want eternal life do you want the best life then follow me come and know me intimately That's eternal life. But to do that, you've got to turn your affections and your desires from the things that you want. We've got to follow him who is eternally worthy and there's only one person who's that, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 5 goes on to say, "'And now, Father, glorify me in your presence "'with the glory I had with you before the world began.'" Jesus is looking forward in hope and in great confidence to being glorified in the presence of his Father. I think one of the truths that we can get out of this, and I've called them memory joggers today, and it's it's this one. Glorifying God is our highest calling. It was Jesus' great desire, and it's our highest calling that our lives might in some way reflect or point to the magnificence of God. It would be so others would see the work that we've done, our good deeds, our praise, and marvel and recognize the greatness of our Heavenly Father. What kind of life glorifies God? What people have you met whose lives glorify God? My father-in-law readily springs to mind for me I'm sure that when he met Jesus, Jesus would have said, well done, good and faithful servant. A good friend of mine uh, from, from my BSF class recently passed away. He was a loyal servant of our highest God. His personal suffering meant nothing in deference to speaking Jesus into the lives of people he met. Who do you know whose lives inspire you To glorify God. Let's move on. Jesus moves on now to start praying for his disciples. This begins the transition for him from his earthly ministry to his heavenly ministry. In his earthly ministry, Jesus revealed his Father. Now how did he do that? He lived a perfect life of obedience on earth. His holiness reflected the character of his Father. He fulfilled what had been promised by the prophets. When people heard his words, they were astonished by his understanding and knowledge. But now his earthly ministry is being turned over to these disciples. They needed his prayers for them. Within the next few hours, they would forsake him, deny their master, scatter like panicking sheep. But Jesus knows that they won't be lost, but they were going to become part of the worldwide harvest of the last day. So, Jesus' prayer for his disciples comes in two parts. Except you're going to see six, because the animation's not working. Okay, let's have a look at the first one. And the first one is Jesus defines who the subjects of his prayer are. And that's verses 6 through 10. They have been given by the Father to the Son. Then we read in verse 10 that the arrangement is reciprocal. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. Now because they're being claimed by God, they're utterly secure. Considering what's going to happen over the next short period of time, this will be a source of great comfort to them. The disciples may not have understood everything that Jesus had taught them, But they're certainly starting to grasp now the fundamental truth of his teaching. They knew with certainty that I came from you. Their certainty about Jesus came from accepting his word. They trusted his word. How do you trust the the words of Jesus? How do the trusted words of Jesus manifest in your life? Verse 10 talks about their achievement. Glory has come to me through them. What encouragement do you get from that statement of Jesus? What must the disciples have been thinking? What have we done to elicit a statement like that from Jesus? The full impact of his statement here will not be seen until at least the time of Pentecost and then the years after that, going on till today. Bringing glory to Jesus as his disciples is based on our trust in him as our saviour. Now let's remember here that our glorifying him is confined to our trust of him. The joy we can take away from this is that the one, Jesus Christ, who who has need of nothing that we can give him, is in fact glorified through our, our obedience and service. Our second point, the concerns of Jesus' prayer. The imminent departure of Jesus from the disciples' presence is a crisis for them. And as we read on further, uh, chapters 19 and 20, certainly, we see that. So Jesus prays four things for them. And as we see them up there, protection. The disciples are going to face two formidable foes. So Jesus here is praying for their protection. So what are the two foes? The first one is they're going to be facing the world which hates them. Jesus had taught them that the world would hate them because they didn't belong to the world and as a result the world would pass judgement on them. What's the second one that they'll be facing? They'll be facing the wiles of the devil. Jesus had spoken many times of this influence even in the case we know of the case of Judas. The devil had displayed his power in overturning one person from Jesus' intimate circle. But remember the good news. Jesus is never thwarted by Satan's power. The world and the devil are daunting enemies to the disciples of Jesus. Then, and nothing's changed for us today, this is reflected in Jesus' prayer for these disciples because it summons to vigilance and prayer for protection. Commentator D.A. Carson expressed it this way, and, and I love this statement, so bear with me. The spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, than we do about praying about the danger of the evil one. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Have you let yourself fall into that category? I know I have. Let's make it a challenge together that we continually pray for each other's protection against the evil one. As we begin this week, let's keep it in the forefront of our minds to pray for protection any time we feel overwhelmed with life and what that leads us to fall away from those that we can't fall away from. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It leads us to fall away from regular Bible study. And that's when the evil one is praying on us to take us away from Jesus. So how are the disciples going to survive this onslaught? Verses 11 and 12 tell us, by the power of God's name. In recognising the power of his name, they're going to be protected from the attacks of the world and the evil one. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Wow! How's that for protection? Our second point is united. Jesus is praying here that they'll be united spiritually. And it's going to be patterned on the example they had witnessed between the Father and the Son. Third point, delighted. Even though they're going to be tormented by a foe they'd not experienced previously, the disciples will be able to experience the joy that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus is praying here that they will experience that joy. It's amazing that Jesus can even talk about joy considering what's going to soon happen to him. Now this joy is not something that is going to be a passing fad. It's going to be a full measure of my joy. The joy of Jesus will not be quenched by the trials and tribulations which are going to go on around them. What are you substituting for the full measure of joy, of his joy? Anything that interferes with our relationship with the Father is joy's enemy our last point in this section dedicated verses 17 through 19 although things are going to look pretty bad for them in the future Jesus is praying for them to be dedicated, he doesn't want them to be removed from the world the main reason he wants them there is to fulfil the mission he has for them that mission is to be sent into the world by the Son. Remember, it's not their mission, but it's Jesus' mission through them. When God sent his son to earth to redeem his people, what it meant for Jesus was his utter dedication to his father's call, his perfect obedience. The disciples' commission is nothing less. It requires theirs and our perfect obedience. Are you up for the challenge that God's called us to do? It calls for our perfect obedience. Now, is that possible as mere sinful humans? I think perfection can only happen at eternity. But Jesus is asking the Father for one more thing for his disciples here. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This word sanctified, like the word holy, come from a Hebrew derivation meaning separate. Jesus is praying to his Father. That's the basis of the Son's mission. God the Father in His holiness is totally separate from sin. Jesus wants this for His disciples. He wants them to be separated from sin. The disciples are to be the sons of light who don't walk in the darkness. John 8, 12 says, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How does it occur? Paul sums it up. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Their sanctification will be by the word of God. And that's the same as their protection." Jesus had taught them the word. He himself is the incarnate word. John 1 14, the word became flesh. Jesus will send his spirit to enact the word within them. The same will be for us. Jesus sent his word to us that we may believe. Jesus will sanctify us and we will be sent apart from the world, set apart from the world. He will strengthen us. He will equip us for the task ahead. What's the task ahead? For the service of the gospel. So what does it mean for us? To be a disciple means to be a missionary. Simple as that. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit. But it's a work where we're held responsible. Where does our responsibility lie? We have to be faithful to his word. We're to be faithful in prayer. We have to be faithful in our fellowship with other believers. Jesus' perfect obedience on the cross demonstrated to us the perfect love between the Father and the Son. That perfect love gave us the opportunity to have a joyful, filled life with the Father. And maybe that's another little memory point that we can have today. Jesus' love for his own brings confident, joy-filled living. Jesus uses all of his power, all of his authority to strengthen us in confidence for this joy-filled life. How amazing is that love? He died to give us this life. So what's keeping us from living it? He is in heaven, confident in us, praying for us to be ever more confident and filled with his joy. As we move into that last section, in my Bible it's it's actually called Jesus prays for all believers. Let's have a think about what Jesus is really saying here. When we consider all believers, who are they? What Jesus is saying here is that he's giving us, you and me, a direct relationship with him. Certainly there are other references in scripture that hint that of the relationship with future generations. But in this passage we see Jesus' direct vision for future believers. If you go hiking in the, Nas- in the Lamington National Park, you come across wave after wave of mountain ranges. You come to the top of one range and the next one stretches out before you. That's the picture I get when I think about Jesus looking forward over the centuries of the church on earth. He sees forward to the progressing church. He sees the harvest gathered from every nation, people, language, tribe. This is, what Je- this is who Jesus is praying for here. And Jesus prays for three things here as he prays for all believer, for the believers. The first one is the church may be united. Now, the unity that Jesus is talking about here is a supernatural unity. That is, it should mimic the unity that we witness through God the Father and God the Son. A perfect unity. Therefore, it's not a unity that comes from any effort of human ingenuity, but by Jesus giving us the glory that the Father has given him. This is the glory that Jesus prays about in verses 3 and 4 that we've read earlier. It's the glory of the revelation of the Father through the Son, completed at the cross and the resurrection. Our part is not to create this unity because we can't. Our responsibility is to maintain it and to express it. Our second one, the unity of the church must be tangible. If the world cannot see that the church is in unity with the Father and the Son, how will it ever believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves the church? The church has to be a visible revelation of the unseen Father and his love. The world needs to see our unity. And the third point, the unity of the church must be evangelical. There must be unity of the church in its witness to the world. It is the witness of the church which will encourage faith for non-believers. Jesus' command to his disciples was to go out into the world with the good news. We must be single-minded with this challenge. You know, as I've studied chapter 17 of John here, it's really challenged me. I've had to reflect on my prayer life and how it stacks up. Sometimes I know it just doesn't stack up at all. It's something that I've had to work through with the Father. But that's okay, you know, because that's what he wants to hear from me. On the other hand, I get this enormous amount of encouragement from the chapter. Jesus prays for unity and Jesus' prayer prevails. If our prayers in Jesus' name are assured of being answered, and that's a promise from Jesus and we know that Jesus doesn't break his promises, how much more will Jesus' prayers in his own name be answered by the Father? He cannot be denied and he will not be. Jesus has prevailed. All Christians, all churches are to love one another as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And that's our, our... third little memory jogger for today. God desires that we experience the fullness of his love and presence. Prayer is communion with God. It's about unity with the triune God. We pray to God the Father. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. And we learned about that last, last week. Jesus taught us to pray through the Son who enabled us to come before the throne of grace with great confidence. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit who directs our thoughts. Like Jesus, we can lay out before him our desires, knowing that he hears and will show us the way forward. You know, prayer is not an option for a believer. Prayer is as vital as is vital to a believer as breathing to stay alive is. Have you thought about prayer in that way? As we come to know God, it's not just about engaging in His Word, it's about engaging with Him in prayer to experience the fullness of His love and presence. So, how much time do you spend talking to God? Now, I'm not asking you whether it's a seven minute special, has it become a daily ritual? full of mailed words or is it a time that you look forward to knowing that the heavenly father is ready and waiting for you to talk to him on that note let's pray heavenly father we just thank you for your word lord we just thank you for the the deep message message that you have for us through the jesus prayers and lord this point about not praying for protection against the evil one as we might. Lord, I just lay that out in front of us right now, that, Lord, uh, you do protect us from the evil one. Guide our thoughts. Protect our thoughts, Lord, that we may glorify you in every, every single thing that we do. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity this morning we've had to study your word. And I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.